Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Tense, a RaceBot TV podcast. Thank you for joining us, either live across RaceBot's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or Twitch, or through the audio version released the very same day through a podcast app of your preference. As always, my name is Arjuna Kankipati, and I am joined by veteran esports commentator Connery Maddock, with our producer Hugo Louise down in the production booth controlling the action. And Connery... We're back after a week off. We had the VCO Pro Sim series last Wednesday that conflicted with our podcast recording slot. But one more episode to go before the end of the year. We're starting to head towards the winter break now. And usually in the real world, that thing means that things start to quiet down. But in the sim world, things are always exciting. And we're going to dive right into it. Porsche Esports Super Cup qualifying are done and dusted. And we're just about four weeks away now from the start of a new World Championship season. Yeah, absolutely. It's a funny thing when the real-life racing goes into its off-season. That's when sim racing starts to come to the forefront because we've got those endurance racing seasons. And, of course, you know, we have the start of the Porsche Tagoya Esports Super Cup for 2021 at the very, very start of the year. So a little bit of a, a change in the dates when it comes to the uh, period where the World Championship takes place. But, uh, but yeah, we have our grid set now. And we actually had to wait for a little bit of confirmation after that final round, Ayuda, due to a little bit of drama. Yeah, hashtags Williamsgate, as uh, Craig Williams put it himself. But uh, let's dive right into it then. Let's talk about the 20 drivers who have locked themselves in. And, well, the most impressive name for me was Charlie Collins, who started off the five-week qualifying season competing for SimRC.de, but at the conclusion of five weeks, uh, no longer driving for the German uh, outfit, now representing the very famous purple and orange of Coanda Simsport. And... Well, Connery, now we're looking at about a quarter of next year's grid representing the purple and orange in some form. There are some regulations in <laughs> the Porsche Super Cup about team affiliations. But, I mean, if you are that team, Coanda Simsport, you've got so many big names now. You've got uh, Dane Warren, who joined up last year as well. I mean, a quarter of the grid, if you are that team, you are very looking forward to this next season of competition and the chance to reclaim a world championship title. Yeah, absolutely. Coming into that, it's going to be perhaps one of, if not the most competitive uh, world championships that we ever had. I, I would say that the 2020 season was the most competitive world championship we've ever had, but it, it seems like as the years roll by here in the Porsche Tagore Esports Super Cup, it looks like things just keep getting closer and closer and closer, and that's um, what we absolutely love to see. We don't want to see just a couple of drivers trying to fight it out for the championship. Everyone up and down the field, we want to see them come to the forefront and have their chance at uh, one of the biggest prizes in sim racing. And, um, you know, the reason why this, this championship is so great is that everyone is so close. Everyone, you know, from pole position down to 40th is within a couple of tenths of a second. And I don't think there's any other season, other series that you get that sort of uh, that sort of closeness. Well, and it's top of the ladder of road racing. And one thing that I think was interesting looking over the names, it's not just uh, some new faces. You do have a few returning drivers. You've got Brian Lockwood, Thomas Tatla, um, Jack Sedgwick, three of the names that spring to mind. But one name that I really found interesting, uh, leading the charge for Williams Esports, Moreno Sarika. And you had the opportunity last year to commentate on him in the Porsche Esports Sprint Challenge. And that support series has really helped, I think, a number of drivers get used to the ins and out of World Championship competition and really prepared them for this qualifying series and to jump in 
to the top ladder of the uh, world championships. There you can see up on your screen, if you're watching live, the 20 drivers that have qualified. And it's a star-studded lineup there, Connery. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I keep saying that this uh, that this season is just going to be so, so sh- strong and so, so competitive because you have all these new qualifiers coming in. You know, very competitive drivers, like you mentioned, Manasarika, very, very solid driver. Charlie Collins, obviously, you've mentioned him as well, winning out the season completely thanks to a good first three rounds. Last two didn't quite go his way, but as long as he uh, you know, got those podiums and those race wins early on in the season, there was no looking back for him. Um, more finished representation in the form of Thomas Tatler, Um And uh, we, we got a good representation in terms of uh, in terms of countries. And we actually get an, an additional two Spanish drivers as well, Ricardo Rico and Carlos Fenolosa, uh, joining Alejandro Sanchez for next season as well. So it looks like Spanish sim racing is continuing uh, on its meteoric rise. And, and don't forget Sanchez's teammate, Salva Talens, as well for MSI Esports, obviously in that partnership with the Apex Racing Team, uh, another driver for the ART outfit that qualified, Zach Campbell in eighth place, who won the first of our uh, Super Session qualifying races. A bit more of a difficult run in the next four uh, outings. Uh, let's also take a look then at your 20 locked-in drivers from last year, and obviously leading the charge, last year's champion, Sebastian Joby. Look through the rest of that list, though, Connery, and there's where you start to see the flood of Coanda drivers filling that <laughs> page, uh, both left and right-hand side of your screens as well. Look, I've, I've, I think in the last podcast, I already gave my thoughts <laughs> when it comes to this sort of situation. Um, and we had quite a lengthy chat after the podcast about that as well to see if uh, there was anything iRacing could do to try and make this seem a little bit less ridiculous. Of course, you know, it's well within the rules, you know, what Coanda are doing. It's, you know, there's it, nothing against it. It just, uh, uh, it doesn't look quite as good from the outside if, uh, you know, a good massive chunk of the grid is all from the same team, even though they are technically separate teams because of the uh, four driver per uh, per quote-unquote team regulation. Well, I tell you what, Connor, we got one more show to go this year, and I'm kind of thinking that will be our recap slash prediction year, but we're taking a look mm-hmm. then at these 20 drivers locked in from last year. I'm going to put you on the spot. Who is going to come in next year, just four weeks away from round number one, and win the next championship? you got Job and Rogers, oh the <laughs> only two previous <laughs> champions in Porsche World Championship competition history. <sighs> Is it going to be one of the new drivers or are those two drivers who have been so consistent over the last two years really going to continue to step up and dominate? Look, look if, uh, if I wanted to be safe, I would say that Seb has a very good chance at reclaiming his title. I will say that. He's a, an incredible driver, incredibly clean driver as well. Just keeps himself out of trouble. And that's what Joshua Rogers failed to do this season. He failed to keep himself out of trouble, and uh, sometimes the trouble was always coming his way in some aspects. You know, it's not that he got himself into those problematic situations, but um, uh, but I think Seb does have a fantastic chance at uh, you know doing the double as far as next season is concerned. But saying that, Joshua Rogers, you know, he, he might be coming back into this one and uh, looking for some sort of revenge, you know, some sort of comeback um, after what was a terrible season. So. Um, certainly that is a possibility as far as new drivers though or as far as drivers that we haven't been talking much that are in, in the conversation I think uh, if we see another year-on-year improvement from Alejandro Sanchez coming into next season then he'll certainly be up there uh, trying to fight it out for the championship but as far as any of the new guys I, I, I 
don't see any of them challenging for the championship. Maybe at least top fives, but not for championship. So there's Connery Maddox predictions. I'm going to go bold here. You know what? I think uh, Maximilian Beneke, he's had a bit of a torrid 2020 across the board. Let's <sighs> see if 2021 is going to be his year for the German driver, Mr. Tenke Beneke, as we used to call him. Um, I just did want to call out as well, Connery. I'm looking at the uh, qualifying result standings right now. A few drivers who I think are a bit unlucky to miss out here on qualification. So in 21st place, two points behind. Uh, 20th place, Fenelosa. Danny Elgabe, who had to miss out on the last qualifying race because of some brake issues. You had um, Luis Felipe Tavares, who was running second in that final race before an incident dropped him down the order. Same with Pete Berryman, who, after winning last year's qualifying series, being ineligible for the World Championship, has come back again trying to qualify and has had a pretty torrid run of luck, as it were. Phil Dinez, as well, in 25th place, made every single one of our five Super Session races and unable to get the results that was needed. And Connery, let's quickly talk about the format here because five races and five opportunities to get qualifying points, but that slight mix-up this time around where not everyone is guaranteed those points. You've got to qualify up into the super sessions and then get the results that you needed. And that really made for a very interesting dynamic throughout the qualifying process. Yeah, it's an incredibly different element, isn't it? Because uh, usually how things worked before, you would just have to have a high enough I rating to get into the, uh, into the top splits, no matter where you got that I rating in the first place. But with this sort of system, you, 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 know, you see those specialists in the car able to well, have a better chance at getting themselves into that super session and being able to uh, grab those points. So it's not so reliant or on I rating. Of course, you you know you have to uh, do those uh, races during the week leading up to the super session and and there's whole all that situation. But it's uh, it, it still gives a better chance for maybe some names we didn't expect to see. But uh, but I I think the system's pretty good. I mean it's I mean I think everything needed to change um, compared to the previous ways the qualifying uh, series used to work, where like I said, it was basically treated like a normal race, a normal i racing official series. The drivers would negotiate amongst themselves, uh, you know which time slot during the week is going to be the strength of field session and of course that might be in conjunction with the uh with the broadcasters as well but that was open to abuse and we we, we saw some abuse of it during the last pro series uh, uh when some drivers were sort of collude together uh you know teammates to be able to make their own strength of field session and just grab a load of championship points that way uh, i think this way is a lot less open to abuse and uh i want to see it used for uh, uh for the years to come as well yeah and i think it was also interesting that they were trialing this new penalty system uh at the same time, and Greg West was every week giving updates about that. So we'll see how that plays out for our next World Championship season. Then a rumor circulating that they're going to bring that penalty system over into the main World Championship. I think that was a bit of a recap then of five weeks of action. Let's jump into our main topic of today and bring in our guest, Martin Asher. Some of you will know him from his company, Asher Racing, that makes some of the highest quality uh, steering wheels out there on the market. Uh, Martin has been part of the sim racing hardware community for going on about seven years at this point and is a person that is reclusive in some ways, doesn't have a public social media, has made it very difficult for us to kind of interview him for this uh, interview, but delighted to be able to talk to him because he's not just a hardware creator, he's also a racer. 
and we are all passionate about racing. And it would be great to talk to him a little bit about that. So Martin, delighted to have you on the show. And it's been a very interesting 2020. And I'm sure for someone like you, it has been one of the more hectic years of your life. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, um, obviously, you could find me. And that's... Uh... I didn't want to make it too challenging for you, but uh, you managed it. <laughs> um, yeah, this year was was really intense for sim racing in general. Um, first, sim racing got one of the biggest boosts it could ever imagine. On the other side, uh, hardware was in demand like never before. And uh, top of that with uh, some supply change, uh, chain some supply uh, changes uh, um, were broken down and yeah, it was a really, really uh, difficult time. But uh, in the end, it was a great year for sim racing in general, I would say. And so, like I said, Martin, people might not know that you like to race as well, because I'm sure you're very, very busy you know, designing and getting the production of the hardware out there. But it's been great to see you competing regularly in the DNLS series that uh, VCO has been putting on. Talk to us a little bit about that and your experiences competing in that series. It's an interesting series. You've got the real series organization coming over, bringing that into the virtual world. And it seems like something that you've had a decent amount of success in as well. Um, yeah, the DNLS uh, was uh, created very, very uh, in a short time frame. So all the COVID-19 stuff canceled the real motorsports and then um, real racing had to get some alternatives and they made a very successful launch, I would say. Um, the DNLS managed to get uh, most of the real racers uh, to race in the simulator. Some of them were very, very new to all of this. Some were already experienced sim racers. And yeah, for for me or for my team or for us, it was a pretty easy decision to take part. Um, if we managed the qualifying, which we did in the end. And yeah, we had some awesome races uh, against big names from the real racing and from the simulator world. So. It's uh, really nice to do this. And I'm, I'm sure some of those, at least some of those drivers competing on hardware that you had designed as well. But let's jump back then to the start of this entire journey. Let's not start with your beginning into the hardware design of things. Let's start with your love of sim racing. Do you remember the, the first time you got to try out a sim title and you, you got invested in it and you felt like this was one of your passions? Uh, yeah, I... I can't think about it. Um, so the very, very first time I got behind a sim racing wheel was actually um, in the late 90s. I think it was like 97 or 98 when one of my friends' uh, dad had a Microsoft Sidewinder for feedback wheel. And it was for me like uh, I couldn't imagine what, what, what we are doing. So it was not a sim racing title, just a regular game but i couldn't believe what i what i'm doing so and then i didn't have computer or good enough computer or the hardware and that was about it but then in uh, maybe 2001 i guess 
I got uh, some entry level hardware and uh, and I raced the F1 titles quite a lot. So in Germany, Formula One was very very popular uh, with Michael Schumacher, and I watched every race and. Then I got behind my my game and raced every uh, week the same track before the real races and got really into it. Um, but in the end, um, I lost track about it for quite some time, I would say. Um, finished school, studying and stuff like that. But uh, at the end of my study um, at the university, I felt the need to to get racing again somehow. I don't know where it comes from, but then I started googling what's what's out there, and I found iRacing. And all that I could uh, find about iRacing was exactly what I wanted. So um, I signed up. I think it was 2012, I guess. And then I bought some other entry gear. And started racing, and up until now, I'm continuously racing and uh, against real people around the world. Well, I I'm guessing that you've uh, things have changed since you started in iRacing as well. But let's talk a little bit about your studies because I, I think there's talking to some other wheel designers and, and manufacturers of sim racing hardware, they don't always get their start in the type of situations that you might think of. So let's start with your background. What was your uh, degree at the university level and, and what was your immediate career path looking like when you came out of that? Um, I was studying uh, aeronautical engineering at, uh, at the Fachhochschule, that's some kind of university uh, in Munich. And actually, I, I finished my degree. It was a diploma. But I was at that point maybe 22 years old, I think. And I didn't want to, to start working immediately. And um, I found out about Formula Student, actually. And then I switched to the uh, TU Munich. They have a very professional formula student team and i signed up for a mechanical engineering degree but uh, my focus was to take part in formula student full-time so i ended up there for two years and we designed cars and took part in, uh, in, in championships around the world and uh, actually in Formula Student, I learned at least as much as in my study before. So we were making concepts, we designed stuff, we tested stuff, we destroyed stuff, we improved stuff. We worked really, really hard. And yeah, and in the end, we actually did some racing as well. Uh, I had the, the opportunity to, to race the cars. Uh, in the championships and for me it was like i had no experience at all uh the the, the closest to a race car was uh i would say a rental car and then i jumped into the formula student race car it has slick tires it has downforce and i couldn't believe what these cars are capable of so that's where i 
lined up with iRacing as well. <laughs> yeah, and I did a Formula Student for two years. And after that, um, I I started my, my own company, actually. Oh, wow. So straight out of your university degree, you, you came out of that, got involved in the sim racing hardware world, and, and that's when Asher Racing itself got, got its start. Yeah, correct. Um, at the beginning, the market was not really great, uh, like really big, I would say. And uh, I, um, I was working part-time for another company um, with my, my mecha mechanical engineering background. Um, we were making some frequency calculations for Porsche, but it took only half a year where I realized I need all my time for my own company and continue in that path. Well, so let, let's jump back a little bit as well, because we were just talking about this before we went on there. You had a history with sim racing that starts in terms of the hardware before your company itself, because the uh, direct drive market is something that really over the last few years has really exploded in terms of, you know, mainstream manufacturers coming on board as well. But you were one of the very first people, it turns out, to build a direct drive wheel and, and be part of that growing community that that designed in many ways the direct drive foundation for at least on the simucube side of thing right because obviously everything that was developed as part of the original osw has all been incorporated into the current day simucube 2 yeah correct um so direct drive changed everything uh, it made actually me starting the company because of the need for for steering wheels but uh it was like that um, I was doing uh, or racing at iRacing for one or two years. And then in our German forum, there was a guy, uh, it was Bernhard Berger. And he made a forum post. Uh, it was just like, uh, hey, guys, um, I found a way to build a direct drive wheel by yourself. Really inexpensive compared to what's on the market today. And I found this uh, um, server drive from Granite Devices. It has a CPU, which I can run my own code. And here I got this uh, this uh, servo motor from China. And all you need to do is some stuff. And he described it very vaguely, I would say. And I saw this post. And for me, it was clear I need to do this. So. Um, I was one of the first guys uh, really getting into it and bought all the components which he described we need. And I worked uh, with Bernhard close together for the firmware side. Uh, so I was testing, he was the developer. And that's where everything started, I would say. Um, in the end, about half a year later, I wrote the OpenSimreal tutorial to get other guys uh, an easy start building their own stuff and more and more people got hooked about it so um today i think the sim racing hardware transformed the market as much as on the software side or on the broadcasting side or everything is working together to make a better experience 
I think you said something important there, which was that it was honestly the direct drive that changed the market. Because Connery, I'm going to ask you a question here. Mm. I, I know you don't yeah. race and you don't have the highest end gear. What's the what's your well, current? I don't, I don't current not day? race. What, okay, you're more like me. You commentate more than you race. But I'll, I'll ask the question: What's your current daily driver in terms of your rig, and what's the most high end rig that you've had the opportunity to try at something like a sim racing expo? Yeah, I mean, I own two wheels at the moment. I but they're both like the basic consumer wheels. So I got a Logitech G920 on my desk right now. I've got a look first master T150 somewhere down there, and um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, both have both have served me fine. But I have been able to try the uh, well, much more premium equipment, shall we say, uh, at things like the Sim Racing Expo. And I gotta say, there is there is an absolute night and day difference, not just in the wheels but also in the pedals as well um but uh and if i could justify if i raced enough and at a top level enough to be able to justify the investment i would definitely go for it but right now for me at least uh talking about the sim racing sort of takes precedence over doing the sim racing at the moment but i, I gotta say you know uh, the leaps and bounds that a lot of the sim racing gear manufacturers have made over the past couple of years is absolutely incredible because i remember a time you know when i first started getting involved in sim racing that was around about 2012 or so like starting to get seriously involved in sim racing of course i've played racing games before that um you know the best you could get was like some of the fanatec equipment and like a a, a t500 or, or something like that it, like the, the the concept of direct drive wheels was still like a, a quite a foreign concept to many people but now it's just uh if you kind of if you're a top sim racer you kind of have to have one yeah, the good thing is um, you can be fast with low-end equipment as well. Mm -hmm. So nobody needs to have it for um, for getting some additional speed. So if you're quick, you're quick with a direct drive wheel or without one. But uh, it's it's uh, much more enjoyable and realistic. And actually, I think it's easier with a direct drive wheel to oh, race. For sure. yeah. For sure I think some drivers, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I, I think most drivers just feel it, it's less that you get quicker, it's more that you are more consistent and are more in tune with what the car is actually doing. Um, so that, that's that's a little benefit in its own way, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been on like a, an interesting path myself. I started with a, a G27, I went up to a Fanatic CSW, then I got a Simicube 1, then I got a Simicube 2. So I've been you know, <laughs> fortunate to be able to try all of these different levels. And the one thing that you realize is that G27 to a CSW is a huge leap, right? You go from, from belt, uh, gear-driven to belt-driven. I think I got that the right way around. And you can start feeling things. But then when you take the next step up from your $500 wheel, let's say, to the next step, which is Simicube 1. Even that was a huge step for me. And then I found the Simicube 2 was an equal step up in terms of that. So it's been really cool to see the continual evolution on the wheelbase side of things. But there's also evolution on this, the, what you actually control, right? The, the wheelbase is what gives you the force feedback. But the tactile input is ultimately what gets served by the wheel rim itself. And one thing I told you right when we started as well, Martin, is comparing what is a 600, 700 euro wheel rim in your F28 wireless SimuQ wheel to a much more expensive wheel that I have, which is the Precision Sim Engineering GPX, which is about six or seven times the price. 
It's very interesting that what started as a one-man shop in your operation is now a much bigger show and much more involved manufacturing process. And as a result, the wheels that you're now producing are, like I was telling to you, just as good as the much more expensive wheels. And at that point, the margin of uh, you know, diminishing returns is so much so much harsher. And that's what makes your wheels such a good value. And there's been so much development work that you've been putting in since you started as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about your process and how your racing experience and how what you want while you're driving, you know, corresponds to then how you come back and sit down and design some of these wheels? Um, yeah, obviously, I'm the first uh, beta tester of my products, uh, always this uh, by myself. And um, I try to get as much feedback as I uh, as I can from customers or testers, but ultimately um, I get the best ideas for new products or improvements when I'm racing my stuff by myself. Um, be it tactile feedback, ergonomics, or actually uh, what kind of controls do you want, what makes sense, uh, be it a joystick or double clutch or whatever. Um, I'm a racer and that's where I get my, my best ideas from. And so talk to us about some of these challenges, right? So you started as a one man show Were you hand, you know, soldering all of these components at this point in time, you were using, I guess, uh, Leo Bodner circuit board. Just talk to us about the early days and then we'll make a, a transition to where you are now. Um, yeah, I started as a one-man show and uh, I made everything by myself. So actually it started, um, I even built my own CNC router to um, to cut the parts by myself, the carbon fiber parts, the uh, plastic parts or whatever. And having the engineering background and the experience from, let's say, formula student, kind of lowered for me the bar to do stuff to do new stuff or i have never built a cnc router before but i i was not afraid uh, of doing the research and on building it so i had no big financial background so i couldn't invest a lot of money i was uh, i have I had very, very little money to to begin with, and I was growing organically. So I took all the earnings and reinvested them all the time for years. And now I, I can uh, make use of much more expensive uh, production processes. And no longer a, a one-man shop anymore, right? This is something that yeah. we can talk about the year that 2020 has been. But were you just talking about your stock situation and what a interesting topic that's been for many people to follow <laughs> along in 2020. But you now have a, a team behind you. You're able to outsource, I guess, some of this manufacturing side of thing and able to focus your attention on a growing the company you know developing products and and all the stuff that you couldn't do when you're spending all that time one by one and you know individually building these wheels yeah exactly um so everything turned out that uh, i cannot serve the demand for my products by myself and hiring uh 
people for assembly and stuff like that was not the best solution because it involves so much uh, effort in the background. But I had the great opportunity to team up uh, with my new partner. It's uh, KW Suspension. It's kind of a very big and famous German company uh, building race car suspensions and uh, automotive suspensions and all kind of stuff. And they used to be my customer. They are involved in sim racing and they approached me and very open-minded ask uh, how we can work together and uh, accelerate the process of uh, making sim racing products and and making better products in the end. And I took the opportunity and uh, now we are working together. KW uh, is making uh, the distribution of the products and um, the manufacturing of the products and we can take advantage of all their resources and I can focus on the development side. And that's what I want to do as an engineer. And for years, I made everything like assembling the stuff, soldering the stuff, selling it, packaging it, shipping it, uh, making the support. And yeah, it wasn't possible to, to keep up with uh, everything. And now AKW is my perfect partner for that. They well, are I deeply involved in sim racing. Um, for... Um, KW, uh, part of them is Race Room, the simulation side and the hardware side. And another brand of uh, KW is Track Time. They are building motion simulators. Yeah. Well, I guess as well, it's very much like being a developer, right? We love to solve the problems and to write code, but we don't like to sit there and do the, the business side of things. We want to get, you know, stuck in hands, hands on. And I think, Connery, I can see you. Uh, peeking up there well uh I, i'm kind of i'm kind of a little different when it comes to that though uh, like because obviously uh for, for those that don't know both myself and you know we are we, you know we went to university for uh computer science uh, you know you work as a, as a software developer in the day and uh, obviously i'm just coming off the back of finishing my degree and obviously into this whole pandemic you know kind of not doing much of anything right now but uh um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's, a, it's different in terms of personality wise, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, STEM, uh, based things, you know, some of them would want to work on just creating something and building something. And obviously, um, which is, uh, what your situation is, I, you know, with uh, not wanting to do any of the business side, but I think the business side is also kind of, uh, it's own little, well, you can have a little bit of enjoyment with it unless you really, 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 really hate the bureaucracy of it. I got told very early on in my career that you always want to get up into management until you end up in management and then you want to end <laughs> up doing all the coding. So I, I guess it depends on the type of person you are. But Martin, let's talk about this partnership with KW, but let's talk about it from the perspective of 2020, right? Because you launched a whole new suite of products at the end of last year. And I can actually hold one of them up right now. I've got one. We've got the F28 wireless wheel right here. And this was part of a brand new suite of things. Uh, SimuCube 2 introduced wireless functionality. You released the wheel that supported that. You released a whole range of button boxes as well. You had a additional USB-based wheel as well. But 
there was always a bit of trouble uh, keeping that in stock. And I'm guessing that 2020 and all of the supply chain issues that were caused in, you know, between February and maybe April or May really made it difficult for you as an individual to keep up supply of your wheels. And I'm guessing KW with all of their resources, like you just mentioned, made it much more possible for 2020 to be a year where you could deliver these wheels to your customers. Um, yeah, correct. Um, but it takes a little bit of time for such a partnership to, um, yeah, to get the output that that you wanted. So it's a long process uh, to implement. But this is just starting right now, where we um, can actually scale up the production as much as what is needed. And that's why I ran out of stock for a really, really long time this year. So when I sold my my last batch, it was like May, the pandemic increased the demand and then the su supply chain had some issues. So um, the biggest effect of the supply chain were, were some electronic comp uh, components. So it was, just a few components that were the bottleneck, but uh, I heard that private individuals were hoarding toilet paper and manufacturing companies were hoarding uh, electronic components. And, and uh, we had really, really long lead time for some of them. Uh, for example, the F64 um, is still affected from, from that, but uh, all the other wheels are back in stock now and we try our best and I hope or I'm confident that we can manage it that we don't run out of stock anymore. Well, and I think that's something that is we can we were going to have a bit more of a roundtable discussion about sim racing hardware at the end of this. But one thing that I think even the bigger companies like the Fanatics, the, the Thrustmatters, they sometimes have this issue just like the smaller boutique dealers do have, which, which is stock, right? It's, sim racing is such a niche business. How much do you want to keep on the shelves ready to go versus how much do you build to order, which is obviously in the case of the high-end custom wheels, a much uh, more realistic and frequent proposition. But I, I'm guessing the prospect of having continuous stock is something that for, this is something that you can finally do for the first time in, I guess, six years of, of selling sim racing hardware. Yeah, if you have your glass bowl where you can look into the future, this would not be a problem. So everybody would order parts in advance. But yeah, it's really, really difficult to estimate the correct amount of demand and having always enough stock to keep up with it, but not too much that if you maybe develop something new, uh, then you have the old stuff still in stock. And it's a, it's a quite difficult balance, I would say. But um, you also don't want to make too big of investments um, and make uh, having um, lots of risk take. So it's yeah, it's it's really difficult, but um, much more as a one-man show compared to, to a big company. Well, I am curious, Martin, what is your personal rig situation? We see you sitting, I think, in your simulator right now. Uh, you got a SimuCube wheelbase, I'm hoping. You've got some nice hoisting belt pedals, potentially. 
Yeah, correct. That's uh, absolutely correct. So uh, here is my, I don't know if you can see it, my Simocube Ultimate, Oising felt metals in the background. And yeah, it's a rig which I, I've built by myself uh, as per my needs. So it's a aluminum profile rig. And I, I try to build it as tidy and neat as possible. Uh, easy to clean. It's on roads. And it's the first time for many, many years where I'm quite happy and don't plan any upgrades soon. Well, you said that. I'm sure you've got something <laughs> planned. I do have a question, though. Are you sitting in a Tillet seat? Because that looks like a very nice seat that you've got right there. Yeah, it's, a, I think, Tillet B3. Okay. I don't know. Is it? Yes. So, so that's yeah, like more a, a GT-style seat, right? Uh, exactly. So I used to have a Tillet before because I was racing a lot of Formula cars. And I I always tried to to build something that comes close to my formula student experience but um i gave up the idea and i'm 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 really comfortable with the gt style uh, position because uh, you have to make sure that the field of view of your monitor is perfect and then you have to make the decision do i put the monitor behind the wheelbase or in front of it and if you have a really really large wheelbase the simu cube 2 is one of the smaller ones but then if you're in a laying position your monitor is too far upwards and you can solve it with a virtual reality obviously it's uh, i think that's definitely the future um but they have to be a little bit more comfortable to wear that I want to do four hour races in virtual reality. Yeah, so, especially, especially for you, you do the DNLS races solo. So I'm sure that comfort is a very important thing. Yeah. So there's nothing that can beat virtual reality immersion wise. It's like the best experience you can ever get. Um, but you have to make some compromises uh, and uh, yeah, when I I was racing virtual reality for a really really long time, um, the resolution was always on the lower side, but I was happy with it. But uh, right now I'm, uh, I'm I switch back to the monitor. I'm still convinced that virtual reality is the future, but as you mentioned, sometimes I'm doing four-hour races uh, solo, and. I want to test my products uh, and I need to see them get a better understanding of everything. And I may be switching back to virtual reality at some point in the future, though. Well, I am hearing good things about the new Reverb G2. So maybe that's something where we get a little bit more in terms of the resolution, right? Yeah, maybe I will get one and... Uh, think about it again. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I, I thankfully have recently, finally, had the opportunity to try VR because my, my partner does actually have a, a, a HTC Vive. Uh, and 
that was that was pretty awesome uh, i gotta say for first experience it, it kind of made me think it's just like oh imagine if i had like a direct trophy or imagine if i had like uh heisingville pals because otherwise you know because that would have been you know such so much more of an immersive experience um but uh yeah i definitely agree that uh uh, virtuality is the future of uh, of sim racing. Um, of course, a lot of the top level uh, drivers at the moment still on the triple screens because you know it's virtuality. It's not just not quite there, not not quite there just yet. But I think in the next generation, I think of, of headsets coming out. I mean, you can even say the 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 Oculus Quest, for example, is uh, is well, excuse me, the um, the the Valve the Valve Index one. There we go. Uh, Valve Index is pretty much there. Um, as far as that's concerned, so you know the next headsets from Oculus and, and some such, you know, are, are all going to be capable of of solving the resolution problem, solving the uh, um, the, the refresh rate and uh, delay and things like that. Um, it's just a case of we all have to upgrade our PCs now, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, we all need 30 series uh, NVIDIA GPUs, Hugo. Uh, <laughs> just, to, just a word, I'll, I'll send you my shipping address after this. But let's move on to something slightly different, Martin. We've talked a lot about the physical hardware itself. But one thing that has always impressed me about boutique sim racing manufacturers, it's not unique to you. And I, I, I know this is an interview with you, but I do want to shout out the rest of the smaller sim racing community, the hardware community as well. But customer support. I don't know why I'm, I'm going to refrain from naming names, but sometimes at bigger <laughs> companies, it t- tends to be less personal, less of a actual customer service type of a feel. Whereas whenever I reach out to uh, one of these smaller companies, it always feels like I'm part of the family and, and you are trying to help me figure out the situation in the best way possible. The quickest way that will also save us all the most time and money. Just talk to us a little bit about that. And the experience of doing customer service at the same time as building the wheels. And I'm sure now with all of the partnerships, you're able to start offloading that to more dedicated uh, representatives for the company. Yeah. Uh, so the best, uh, my goal was always uh, the best customer service is the one that you don't need. Um, but that's quite a unreachable goal, I would say. So um, being the sim racer by myself and I can perfectly understand my customers and I got uh, fed up when I want to to race an important race and my, my gear is breaking down. So I made the goal personally for myself and now with the KW uh, partnership as well that customer service is number one. So if there is a problem, we fix it as quick and as uh, easy as possible and um, i don't know it's just the logic thing for me to do i think well i think that the thing that's important right is especially in these type of uh, companies right people are spending a lot of money often like in the early days they have to wait for the product as well because it was built to order that just the more helpful feeling right that even if the customer service was needed in the unlikely case you're always there prompt replies uh you're not trying to blame the customer for for anything just a few basic understandings to try and make the customer's experience as pleasant as possible i've only had to contact you once and well that was as we call in the software world pebcac a user exists between the user and the keyboard uh in this case it's my (laughs) brain i had the battery 
the wrong way around in my wireless wheel. So I mean, <laughs> okay. when you get small issues like that, sometimes as as a developer myself, I get a little frustrated as, at, at times when I get support issues. But I think it's always been important to a company like yours that every time someone talks about it on the forum, there's that positive word of mouth. Because like you said, most of the company's growth has been organic and driven in, in a lot of ways through the iRacing forum. Yeah, I think it's uh, something can go wrong anytime. So no matter how 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 hard you try, but at least uh, if you try to learn from every single mistake and take uh, measures to to avoid them in the future, then you're getting constantly closer to to not having the need for customer support. We all know it's not going to happen, but uh, I try to learn from every single mistake and improve the product constantly. Well, I tell you what, Martin, let's break it off now into a slightly more different discussion. We've talked a lot about your background to this point, but let's talk a little bit more broadly about sim racing hardware and what it can do to continue evolving, right? Because we're in the stage now where, like you say, VR is going to be the future. And as a designer of sim racing wheels i'm sure that poses different problems right no longer do you have the issue of users wanting leds maybe or, or, or things like that but instead the difficulty becomes ensuring that the wheel layout is simple enough that users can remember they find the right button 100 percent of the times and just different challenges start to arise in the design process yeah i think the future of sim racing um we we got a taste of it this year so the real racing and the simulator world is getting closer i think so you see some real racers jumping in the simulator we see simulator racers getting in the real world uh, now you used to start your racing career with karting now nowadays you can just prove yourself online being uh, one of the best sim racers gets you the opportunity for real drive. And I think the same is uh, going to happen with the hardware. So um, some of my parts are used in real racing for uh, quite some time. Uh, for example, the pedal shifters or stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's like merging together, I think. So wait, wait, you're... I, you're your paddle shifters are actually used in real cars? <laughs> yeah, sure. That's awesome. That, that is really, really cool, actually. Um, but I, I guess it's about a time before the whole wheel assembly becomes, you know, just stick it on the uh, on the steering column of a real race car and call, and call it a day, right? <laughs> uh, to be honest, I can see that happening. So um, we obviously have some small differences uh, with... You don't have a USB in the car, but you have uh, other types of electronics. But I think we are getting closer where eventually you can almost take the same wheel from the simulator to the real car. I think there will always be two versions of it, but only some minor differences. And you can, as a real racer, race the similar or exact same wheel in your simulator to the train or if you're an, an uh, enthusiast you always want to have the real gear and you're really really close to it actually 
And what I saw in the real racing world, uh, sometimes the simulator components are even better than the real ones. Well, I guess in some ways, right, sim racing hardware has to have a longer lifespan, right? Because if you're a racing team, the costs are already so exponentially high that if you need to replace a steering wheel after six races, it is what it is. But if you need to replace your steering wheel every sim, uh, six sim races, that's going to start adding up. You know what I mean? <laughs> so the components in there, especially like, for example, your shifters, Martin, um, in terms of testing, can you quickly talk to us about your testing philosophy? Because I'm sure you have automated testing that helps validate a lot of your components. Um, what does that look like for you in the sim racing world? Um, so designing my products is obviously uh, some kind of uh, evolutionary process. So I learn from from every product that I design and from every uh, issue that I'm experiencing. Um, I try to find the source of the issue and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And for the pedal shifters, I simply um, made a test trick and let it run to no end and see what happens. And I can uh, I can say for sure that the pedal shifter you will going to have a really hard time to get to the end of the physical capabilities, like destroying the switch which is rated, I believe it was uh, 2 million cycles, but that's only the lower end if you use the switch with a high electric load. So obviously anything can break at any time, but you can, um, you can make sure that, that most of the stuff uh, simply cannot happen. And for the pedal shifters, yeah, I, I have a test trick and I, I stopped testing at some point because it didn't make sense to, to run, to run it. It was a really loud experience in my, in my workshop and I, I stopped it after two or three million cycles. Oh man, that sounds like a long uh, couple of hours as well wow. of listening to the tick, 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 tick of the, of the shifters <laughs> going back and forth. Yeah. Oh, Connery, I th I thought you had something to say. You looked ready to say something. Nah, 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 nah. I I just I have my wheel on my desk, and I was just like, I was I was just clicking the shifters because. <laughs> said, uh, but obviously, with my microphone, I you know you can't hear anything because it's meant to be noise cancelling. But, um, but yeah, it's 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 great to see you know. Uh, at least he did that initial portion and then it was just like well you know we've gone through all this rigorous testing and they still haven't broken yet so might as well um <laughs> might as well get them out the door so to speak what are you doing now yuna well I'm just... oh you got your wheel <laughs> yeah no i'm just ex examining the very delightful f28 se the wireless simucube wheel that martin has you can see here the simucube wireless logo and i'm just having a little bit of a click here i think you guys can hear that through the the microphone can't you <laughs> yes <laughs> It is a very tactile shifting fe feeling like this. I, I, I was saying it early, uh, earlier, Martin, but this really is in many ways a direct competitor to a wheel that costs about six times as much. And that really is one of the, the highest praises that you can give to any product, I think, is, is comparing it to a much more expensive version of a, of a similar thing. So I'm just enjoying this very much right now. Yeah, good to hear that. I... I hope uh, it doesn't end with the F28SC from your wheel collection. <laughs>
Well, He's uh, trying to get you to buy more, are you? Know? <laughs> I, I know that was. It's leading in perfectly to my next question, which is: I, I asked you about what you think the the future of design is going to be, but for you and the company itself. You've now been freed up, I guess, as a result of making this partnership with KW. You've got a bit more time to dedicate to the design and, I guess, the the racing and testing part of things as well. What do you think is next? I think the one thing that I don't think I've seen in your collection of products yet has been a wheel with a screen. Is that something that you think, especially with VR becoming more and more prevalent, is still something that has a future or... Do you not think that it's necessarily worth the amount of time to develop that process? Um, that's a really difficult question, I have to say. Um, there is definitely um, a reason to have to have wheels with display, but um, I can tell you my to-do list is really, really long, and uh, I cannot uh, disclose any secrets and. Ooh. I think <laughs> I think if you follow my social media, you are uh, that's the best point to to get uh, information about any new products. Speaking of wheels with screens, though, um, I, I, I'm guessing I'm not the only one that basically just used to like duct tape an old phone to the steering wheel, right? Like that, that, that's what I used to do: just load up JRT and then just like run it in the browser on the phone and just like have the dashboard that way. Um, I thought that was pretty cool at the time, but now I realize it's kind of like not the most ideal situation. It looks kind of tacky. So yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping that uh, uh, that the well wheels with uh, actual displays uh, are uh, are developed, and uh, so so our setups can look a little bit nicer, I suppose. Yeah, but as you mentioned, so it's a really difficult question because um, is there really a need? for the wheel uh, display or not if you are racing virtual reality uh, there's mm. definitely no need for it and is there a market for it when the price is uh, obviously higher for for these wheels and the third point is uh, if your sim racing setup is correct then you most likely see the virtual wheel and on your screen anyways so it's a really really difficult uh, decision to make uh, if you want to make the the great investment for such yeah, a wheel say it's, it's quite a weird one because obviously you know if you're running single screen you can have to get like a realistic fov you always have to uh, reduce the fov by quite a bit so sometimes you cannot see the dashboard but then again if you're spending so much money on buying a wheel that has a screen built in you're probably gonna already have at least triple screens so it's it's kind of like and you could probably get the fov out enough to be able to see the dashing game so it's it's kind of a weird one isn't it yeah and the another point is uh actually for example the if you want to have a simocube wireless wheel mm-hmm. um it has a a battery inside so you're really limited in regards of uh, displays so there are things to solve it for sure but we will see what the future will bring well i actually have a question for you martin because we've been we have been seeing a lot of these screens i'm trying to think of all the different products i've been seeing a number of standalone dashes an increasing number of wheels with the um screen itself included is the, is it a technical challenge because i'm sure there's a lot of work that goes in there you talk about 
um, on the wireless wheels, for example, not having the battery capacity to power that, those type of screens. In, in terms of designing these sim racing wheels, how much of it is a technical compromise over you know designing what you want versus what's technically possible versus adapting it for the price point and the ergonomics as a racer that you ultimately want yeah um most if not anything is possible so as you mentioned uh, you have to make a compromise uh, is it worth the additional development and uh, product costs and yeah it's uh, it's it's always some kind of compromise that you have to make as an engineer it's uh, the whole world is a compromise in the end but uh, regarding my developments um i try to find some kind of sweet spot where it's not uh not a 50 dollar plastic wheel but it's not a 5000 dollar custom wheel so i think there is an increasing market for higher end priced uh, products to get more realism out of it. But you always have to find the best and we will see. Oh, we will see indeed. And I think that's a good time then for maybe us to wrap up here. Martin, before we let you go, you mentioned social media. Like I said at the start of the show, I've had a very difficult time finding your social media. Why don't you give... Uh, the the company social media and indeed anyone else a plug here just so that they can follow along with the development of of new products and indeed uh, follow along with stock updates as well as they come along yeah check out um, instagram facebook and youtube for usher racing and we just launched uh, all the social media channels and they are constantly updated with the new stuff and i think it's it's worth subscribing. Well, thanks for joining us, Martin, then. And good luck for the rest of the year. And I know there's at least one more DNLS race that uh, you might be able to compete in. So good luck with that one. that one. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. See you. So that was Martin Asher then. And that's it for a, another episode of Talking Tense. Before we go, though, Connery, I do want to get your thoughts. We've got one more episode to go before the end of the year. Um, I think we should have some kind of a, a recap episode, um, but I, I don't want to just talk to the winners of you know the this year's world championship. I think we should try and do something a bit more interesting. Maybe we should try and get our very own Hugo Louise to come on the episode. <laughs> yes, but yes, I approve. I mean, he's gotten a new microphone, so to do some of the Portuguese commentary on iRacing, so or Brazilian Portuguese uh, commentary. So there's no reason why he can't actually join us on the podcast now. Uh, it'd be great to get some insight from a driver that has won a world championship with just the G27. So there we go. So none of this fancy uh, um, fancy direct drive or Heusingveld pedals uh, stuff. You know, he, he did, he did, you know, you know that whole old thing that uh, you know that old stereotypical granddad thing where it's just like I walked up, I walked to school and back both ways uphill and things like that. I think I get the feeling that's what Hugo's going to be like. Well, I tell you what, we've thrown down the challenge and we'll see if that happens then. But let's wrap it up then for another episode of Talking Tents and let's preview another great weekend of racing action all live on RaceBot TV. In just a few hours' time, you can catch uh, 60 plus racing adventures as they wrap up another great season from Watkins Glen. Catch uh, Paul Smith and David Haynes on the call for that one. This Friday, you can catch the end of two more championships the Pro Mazdas 
finish up their season also at Watkins Glen alongside Friday Night Primetime and the IMSCA Sports Car Championship from the Imola circuit. Nolan Rempel and Ryan Walker will be on the call for that one. Busy day on Saturday and it kicks off with BMW Munich and their finale. You can join Connery Maddock, uh, Paul Smith and myself will all be part of the broadcast team for that one as well as the Rallycross World Championship season finale from Sonoma as well as the major season finale from the Nürburgring. Sunday then, it's the Ivory GT Sprint Series rounds number five and six from Daytona alongside round number three of the Porsche Esports Carrera Cup Denmark. Busy weekend then for us and time to say goodbye. For myself, Arjuna Kankipati, I've been joined by Connery Maddock and Hugo Luis, and we'll see you in two weeks' time.